Kansas City's talk show for throttle junkies, motorheads, and anyone who loves rocking the driver's seat. From barn fresh to concour ready, Road Muscle Radio parks the latest news and the biggest names in rolling thunder right in your ears. Let's welcome your show hosts, 30-plus year radio veteran, author, playwright, lousy karaoke singer, and lover of fat and freaky American classic cars, Mark Catfish Groves, and freelance automotive journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield. Let's put the pedal to the metal. Road Road Muscle Muscle Radio is on the air. From the magnificent Calic Media offices located in the subterranean lair of my id, welcome to Road Muscle Radio. I'm Catfish Groves. And I'm Brad Hatfield, and you folks have no idea how accurate that is. Be sure to check out Road Muscle Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and at RoadMuscleRadio.com for links, our blog, cool car events, and there's lots of them. It's almost embarrassing. We'll touch on that here in a second. And, of course, our podcast. Now, coming up in this episode of Road Muscle Radio, 2021 Dodge Chargers just got price tags. Holy mashup, Batman. What is your car now? And, what, uh-huh. and what's the Vega-est idea you have, you see what I did there, for a car uh-huh. with six miles on it? Then in the uh, second segment, Jeff Stunkard, author, to, author of Hemi, A History of Chrysler's Iconic V8 in Competition, of which I have in a copy in my hot little hands, uh, oh, yeah. joins us to talk Mo Books, Mo Magazines, and Mo Par. I'm guessing you've been reading that book when you have alone time. <laughs> Honey, uh, I, I need to read the book. Baby, can you <laughs> can you go out? I don't know. I'm sure there's a flower that needs plucking or something, sweetheart. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, I, I need my book and uh, maybe my sex song. Well, you know what's really interesting uh, about that whole experience is, yeah, dude, love me my Mopars. This is some shit that's in, stuff that's in the weeds. Holy heck. Oh, yeah. Holy oh, yeah, heck. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to Jeff because all I'm going to do is sit there and Obi-Wan the hell out of this guy. I, I He is so – he knows so much, and I'm like, what? Say, so there were like two or three versions of Hemis before the 426 and this and that, and they did the oh, you thingies in different angles. This guy angles. is your Yoda. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to climb right on my back and whisper in my ear, you are stupid, and he's not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn a lot. What have you been doing in cars, by the way, for this past week? Cars and, uh, and motorcycles. I've been continuing to polish the old Harley truck, trying to bring it back to its former glory. Dude, uh, At- the only way you're going to get any more shine on that is to, like, just paint it. Oh no! It's already we're, pretty glittery. We're deep into paint correction detailing here. <laughs> I got you. Uh, we have gone off the rails and over the top. <laughs> what at, you? At, no. at one time, uh, Dad had he didn't wreck it bad, but he did stick it down in a ditch, avoiding hitting some deer on a highway down in the Ozarks. Oh! And the front end was repainted. Now, my dad. It, it blesses heart, you know, he looks at it and if it's kind of shiny, he's like, Oh, that's, that looks good. And you know what a nitpick I am about. Yes, things. I do. Well, I really like to find the guy who repainted that hood. <laughs> he should never be allowed to shoot anything ever again, ever. Being an auction analyst has ruined you for details. Cause you're like, wait a minute, oh. that little, that, 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 right, come back, that. Yeah. damn dude <laughs> well it wasn't like i wasn't ocd to start, yeah, with. To start. Fact, <laughs> and now you have I a perfect legitimate be, reason to be <laughs> yeah and i think it should be cdo because then the letters are in all ah, there you go <laughs> the the black paint on that hood 
is atrocious. There's more orange peel in that than an entire fruit grove in Florida. Oh, oh yeah. And uh, so much so that I looked at it this weekend at one point and thought, screw it, I'll have it wrapped. Oh, no. <laughs> what? what? Are you? Wrap? I, I yeah, didn't I'll think... just I'll just rewrap it black. That'll hide the awful paint. Nailed it. You know, you could always <laughs> rattle can it. Come over to my neck of the woods. <laughs> oh, God. You're so bad. Krylon uh, is like sex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, aside from that, uh, I worked on the Mercedes for a while until I thought for sure I was going to have a German aneurysm. Dude, is is it running yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? No. No. no it's not running yet. <laughs> It's it's still giving me the German afto every Put that time. Put mustache against the beard and shut those lips. No, it ain't running. No, <laughs> um, and so I I work on that till it aggravates me, and then I go ride one of the Harleys, and I'm much happier. Ah, uh, there you go, happy place. So, anyway, bad. how about you? Uh, other than reading this book and uh, sitting in a corner, and going, oh yeah, right down the This is the best thing happen. ever. Uh, you know, honestly, nothing. Nothing car related, car or vehicle related. Uh, oh, well, I, you know, I, I did a little bit of maintenance on the, on the pickup truck because it sounds odd. I need to go, uh, uh, I'm praying to God. It's just the, the low, uh, amount of fluid in my power steering and it's not the power steering pump going bad because that thing is, it's right in the nickel and dime, uh, area <laughs> of its life. And I'm like, I just, I need to go get a serpentine belt, put that on, you know, that's 70 bucks there. No biggie. And then uh, uh, get that juice into my power steering because it's making funny noises and not that funny. Nickel ha-ha. and dime is when I usually buy them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, because you're smart. And I get under no, that hood and I'm, I'm like, I'm going to, I know I'm going to F up something. Um, and I watched a couple of other cars. I was going to go look at that uh, uh, Plymouth that I talked about. There was that mm-hmm. tasty 49 Plymouth. Good looking thing. Of course, the son of a bitch sold. Of course uh, it did. Uh, are we going I even went to, to address the big elephant in the room right now and why we're doing this on Zoom? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, come on. No, no. But um, so I, so the car that I was looking at uh, went bye-bye, and, and that, was like, that was like a sign from above saying, just go do other stuff for a while, and did a bunch of yard work, and I was a good husband and getting stuff done. And then, you know, when I level, I, I know this is exciting car stuff. I'm, I'm so glad to share this. When I leveled my, uh, my outdoor unit for the air conditioner, what's that noise? That's, that's not my power steering unit. That's a little thing. Oh, Hey, great. So a little weld broke and I had to wrap it up real fast because, uh, there was some uh, uh, refrigerant starting to leak. And I just got word that's going to be 500 bucks today. And I'm like, son of a bitch. See, that is, honey, that's why I don't do work on the house. Because it's expensive when I do it. See, I'm still stuck <laughs> on the fact that you said unit. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I had to work on my unit. And it is expensive. So uh, so that's kind of, that's been my time. And then, of course, regular radio work. So, uh you're, you, you, it's just a mile a minute with you, man. It's pure excitement. Yeah, you know, I'm living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> one, one lawn mowed at a time. Well, uh-huh. uh, at least in news, there was some really interesting stuff that uh, came out. The uh, prices for the 2021 uh, Dodge Chargers are finally out and about, and I was kind of surprised at them. 
Because I was expecting, you know, oh, God, these things, they've been just building them up and this and that and talking about them so much. They were surprisingly cost effective, you know, even yes. even for a dude like me talking about it, you know, whining yeah. about a $500 fixed air conditioner. Uh, the 2021 Dodge Charger lineup starts at twenty nine nine ninety five, twenty under that's, 30K. That's cheaper than a Camry. Now, it does start with the V6. So but the V6 it, is not bad. The V6 in that is 305 horse. The one that I was looking at was putting out 292, and it's got an okay, eight-speed well, automatic, but I mean, it's bad. right at 300. Uh, you yeah. still get 0 to 60 in 6.6 for your family car. So, Dude. you know what? <laughs> person, can, uh, person can live with that. Now, That's zippy. If you want to step up from that, the 2021 Dodge Charger Scat Pack, you want to take a little step up and some power and, and get up to the V8 and get your rumble, that's at 41. Uh, they have the, it has the most horsepower per dollar of any sedan in the industry. Now, I that's don't, so cool. I got that. This article came from carindigo.com. And the one thing I have to wonder is, you know, how many sedans really are left? American manufacturers have almost quit making all sedans. There are very few left. In fact, Dodge may be the only one left. And if you start looking at sedans, you real quickly, you either wind up looking at Japanese stuff, which means you've got Camrys and Accords and Altimas. And, and I Maxis think Hyundai makes a, like a higher end version of it. Uh, I can't remember well, the name of it. Hyundai also makes the Stinger. And uh, Hyundai also has their uh, Uber luxury brand, Genesis. That's the one I'm thinking of. Which is an incredible car for the yeah, money. Yeah, it is. But if you start talking about sedans, you've got Japanese and Korean manufacturers, and then you've got Europe. You've got Mercedes and Audi and BMW and uh, a few from Volkswagen, which is Audi Light and and uh, Porsche Panamera. Well, not to throw any, there you go, dude. Not to throw any shade on my beloved uh, Mopar, but damn, I mean, it's practically European anyway, if you really well, think about it. And uh, no, 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 not if you think about it, if you know a little bit. The current generation uh, Challenger and Charger are still built on a platform that's based off the old Mercedes E-Type or E-Class. Right. And that was how long ago did Chrysler separate from Mercedes? Long enough ago that now they're owned by a different European country. <laughs> That's exactly company. right. It's all Europe. So, <laughs> it's FCA uh, all the way. Yo, yo, yo. But, <laughs> but that's uh, the chat, the Charger and Challenger, uh, unless I'm mistaken, are still built on the old Mercedes E-Class platform from, I think, the mid-90s. Inexpensive. It's a great platform. They're fairly reliable. They've got great performance. And good Lord, look at the numbers for dollars now. Yeah. You haven't gotten to the really exciting not stuff to the, yet. Not to the best ones. Yeah, the Scat Pack is at 41, 45 horsepower, 392 cubic inch Hemi. Uh, you've got 10 more standard horsepower than last year on the Charger SRT Hellcat. Uh, so you're at 717 horsepower. Supercharged 6.2 liter Hemi Hellcat V8 engine. Now that starts at just a kiss under 70K. Yeah, well, maybe I'll just not work on that Mercedes anymore and go buy me a Charger. Yeah, well, for as much as you're going to have to pay to get that Mercedes running, you're not wrong. Uh, the new 797 horsepower 2021 <laughs> Dodge Charger SRT Hellcat Red Eye. God, what a mouthful. Does a quarter mile in 10.6, top speed of 203 miles per hour, hits your bank account right at 78.5 and change. Why is it when you you think about 
a 797 horsepower charger. Why does it suddenly make you want to devolve into snidely whiplash? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or what was the one dog? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it sounds like Scooby, and it, and you, uh, it, it will devolve you into just a power-hungry child, and why not? Yeah, and why not? Well, the uh, I did a little research on this because I was like, okay, they're starting the Dodge Charger starting at twenty nine nine ninety five, and in nineteen sixty six was when the Chargers first came out. A base Charger in nineteen sixty six was three thousand five hundred dollars. So I I did a little googling. And three thousand five hundred from sixty six in twenty twenty dollars is twenty eight thousand thirty seven dollars. You're basically way to hold the line, baby. Yeah, it's like two k more. But back then, you didn't get you know sweet little things like air conditioning or you know electric anything. The original one had let's see a two hundred thirty horsepower manual three speed. Today's ride at two thousand more crazy bells and whistles. The one thing I will give that original charger four bucket seats. <laughs> That tunnel went all the way through, through the back seat, and you had armrests that came down in the middle between the two buckets in the back. And then you could fold those down and get trunk access. So it was just this freaking close to being a hatchback. (laughs) 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 And I love it. Uh, Oh, by the way, if you want to find out more about uh, this, not only will we have it on on the blog, but uh, talk to our friend Jeff Briggs up at Victory Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. It's up north of KC. And uh, tell them Road Muscle Radio sent you. Huh? Huh? Yeah, that and five bucks will get you a cup of coffee at any Starbucks. You're damn right it will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gaming to get back on that track behind his place for free. So, you know, tell him we we said hey. We're so going. (laughs) Well, from cardvice.com AU, uh, we're seeing some pictures of the Batmobile from the upcoming Batmobile, Batmo, Batman film. Oh, well, let's face it. For us, it's going to be the Batmobile movie anyway. Listen, you, you put you and me and uh, Corey from Driven Radio and Craving Cars all around a table, and we'll talk about all our favorite <laughs> car movies. And inevitably, none of us know the plot to any of them. We just watched them for the cars. Oh, so. and with, is that all that surprising? With Pattinson as uh, Batman? I mean, seriously? The, the sparkly vampire? Oh, sh- <laughs> really? No. I ain't watching it for the new Batman. Anyway, the upcoming Batman film will feature a 1970s muscle car-inspired Batmobile. Folks, cool. look, for the ta- look for the link. To this on roadmuscleradio.com <laughs> you are gonna want to go see the pictures for this the thing is cool i love uh, it i think blade would have gotten just a total bone on that thing well this looks like a shorter version of blade's car with yeah, an update but with the jet engine you know <laughs> <laughs> <I'm totally laughs> the first official it. trailer the first official trailer for the 2021 batman movie gives us a glimpse uh the best glimpse yet at the Cape Crusaders' new set of wheels. The film will star Robert Pattinson as Batman, yeah, and his uh, Batmobile appears to be heavily inspired by classic American muscle cars of the 70s. According to the article, online reports have suggested the vehicle is a modified Plymouth Barracuda, but the article says that's wrong. It's not okay. accurate. Okay. Instead, the Batmobile appears to be a caricatured amalgamation 
of classics such as a Dodge Challenger and a Chevy Camaro and a Ford Mustang. And you and I were talking before we went on air. It looks like there's a little C3 Corvette in there if you look at the back end. Oh, yeah, the back end, the way it kind of lifts up. Uh, yeah, well, the flying buttresses and the cam tail and all that stuff. So there's a lot of different stuff in there. and It's just all cool. The newest iteration of the car appears to be powered by a front-mounted internal combustion engine with a jet booster at the rear. Uh, think Firebird from the movie Hooper. <laughs> Talk about another movie I watched for the car. It's a sexy-looking uh, pileup that they've got going on. It's like uh, they took all the, the kind of pretty chunks, the hips off of this and that. I have seen some... Um, custom resto mods of challengers that kind of remind me of this where they just totally kind of edged it up and still had the the flanging hips but all of it has a really metallic kind of edgy industrial well look to it, it it does have flared hips kind of a coke bottle body a flat roof and like i said the flying buttress rear ends and the cam looking tail that's split to accommodate a turbine it does have a little lego to it it's got a <laughs> lot of muscle car pieces here and there uh you're not wrong uh, early, for Pyrrhus, the Batmobile first appeared in Detective Comics 37 in 1939. It wasn't a Batmobile. It was just a regular red car. It was, car. Uh, yeah. you know, it, the first live-action Batman film in 1943 featured a stock black 39 Cadillac Series 75 convertible. Yeah, baby. It's It, it didn't start being... That's the uh, Fatmobile. <laughs> yeah, well... And the 1949 uh, version had Batman and Robin driving around in a standard Mercury 8. But in the 60s, they gave the assignment to George Barris. And we all know that George Barris was a madman. (laughs) And uh, he took uh, the 55 Lincoln Futura concept car and completely customized it and turned it into the Batmobile from the 60s TV show. And that thing sold for $4.2 million at a Barrett-Jackson Jamie. auction in Scottsdale in 2013. I was there! You saw it, you saw it hit the, yeah, uh, hit was, the block? There. Oh, my God. There. That's cool. If I started ticking off all the really cool cars I saw go at Barrett-Jackson, you'd think I was a mutant, and you'd be right. <laughs> and you'd be right. <laughs> uh when Tim Burton remade Batman in the late eighties and early nineties, he had a completely different uh, version of the Batmobile. Um, it had a lot of Chevy Impala parts on it and uh, it, it just, it big wings and it's, it, it was very Tim Burton. If you know anything well, about well, Tim Burton and how wild he is. Yeah. The, uh, from the movie and just the looks of the city, et cetera, the first one, I did enjoy that first uh, Batman movie with Tim Burton However, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the the acting uh, Keaton. Uh, yes, I, yes, I enjoyed his version of Batman quite a bit. But the rest of it, I just kind of eh, the the set design and the really cartoony. No, eh, it was Burton. Yeah, it was it very was much. It was very much Burton. It should have been a stop action anime or well, animation. A, lot, a little bit of Burton goes an awful long way. It do. It do. And the other thing is, um, I've seen. Uh, inside the one, uh, or at least a replica of the one that they did there, and you almost cannot see out of it. Yeah, it is very difficult to see anything out of it. And it's also tough to get in and out of. Uh, and then Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy that ran from '05 to 2012, uh, the Battlefield was complete. It was the Tumbler, yeah, and that's the one that everybody seems to remember. Hell. 
I'd sign up for that. Give me that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of four wheeling right there. I'd take that into Victory Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram and run it on the back course. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. And they tell you you couldn't use a turbine. Check uh, this, Jeff. <laughs> that that thing was awesome, and they claimed that they could get that thing to do a five six zero to sixty. That Gee, is man. really moving for something that large. Uh, said it had a top speed of 160 miles an hour. There's no effing way. I, you wouldn't catch me dead in that thing. There's just no effing way. Can you imagine being in that sucker doing a buck and a half? <laughs> no, not for long. <laughs> no, thank you. You know, uh, I don't care how tough it looked. Everything doing 150 miles an hour or 160 miles an hour, you hit something with it, it comes apart. Yeah, it's game over, especially when it's just been made to kind of be looked at. That's, yeah, that's that's not how that works. Uh, yeah, no. So uh, they're going to do something new uh, in the new movie. It's slated for a 2021 June debut. Uh, I'm sure we'll see lots, lots more pictures between now and then. Well, yeah. uh, but, uh, well, it was initially slated for June uh, of 21, but courtesy of this fantabulous virus that's been going around yeah. they pushed it back till next october you got just over a year kids i'm sure lots of pictures will come out but if you want to get a look at this now go to roadmuscleradio.com click on the link the pictures are really cool from autoweek.com uh they had a fun little article that i decided to pull out and, and thought we'd talk about this in the show because i like weird old cars and they had a no. fun article. I know. Imagine. And this one actually has a little bit of personal history on it. What would you do with a Vega that had six miles on it? I'll tell you what I'd do with it. <laughs> There's a brick uh, wall, I know. <laughs> no, I'd gut the sucker. I'd gut it. That'd be the fastest LS one LS swap you ever saw. Well, the background <laughs> of why you would even have a uh, Vega with six miles on the clock. Uh, Lambrecht Chevrolet in Pierce, Nebraska had a big old honking auction back in 2013. Ray mm-hmm. Lambrecht, the owner, had a tendency to squirrel away some of his cars, and he'd had this thing for umpteen years. He was 95 years old back then when he decided to sell off his collection. Several had delivery mileage, so basically they were never driven almost at mm-hmm. all. All in all, about 500 cars hit the block. Yeah. I think yeah. old, uh, Ray had a little problem with letting go <laughs> and quite a few with this ridiculously low mileage on it. This one was a 1977 Chevy Vega. And, you know, for comparison, one of the other cars was a 1978 Chevrolet Corvette Indianapolis 500 pace car edition sold for mm-hmm. $80,000. It had four miles on the odometer. Four. And, the- and with all of these cars, no miles, as new, probably still got the plastic over the seats, stuff like that. But this is like a conversation that Vern and I had last year Oh yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on Driven Radio about that uh, Grand National that had six miles on it. Unless you're just going to clean it up and put it in a museum and make it a museum piece that never moves again, you have to go through and replace all the gaskets, all the hoses, yep. all the belts, all the rubber. You got to replace a battery. You got to replace all the fluids. And then you have to run it once in a while to make sure that it's still viable. Yeah, Otherwise, the juice yeah it just rots. It's a sculpture. <laughs> 
the uh, the article, and I didn't put it in here, but the article mentioned a Chevy Lumina minivan that also had, oh, like, no. had like 18 miles on it that some guy bought. However, going through it, yeah, all your brake lines, your gas lines, you got to yeah, drop tanks, everything. you got to do this. And then you get to see if the engine might run. And one of the things about poor Ray, uh, Ray collected all these cars. Not all of them stayed covered all the no. time. No. So you've got a Chevy Lumina that sat outside for 10, oh, 15 God. years. And it's not, yeah. Here's the weird thing. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know where they are now because there's no reason for me to follow them. But I'll promise you, at some point in the future, those the Chevy Lumina vans and the old Silhouette vans and uh, I forget what all the different iterations of them were. A lot of people called them anteater vans or dustbuster vans because they looked oh, just like dustbusters. Yes, they did. <laughs> at, at some point, those will be collectible. Yeah. And the other thing is, a windshield on one of those mothers costs eight hundred dollars. Oh my god! They're huge. You don't realize what a giant chunk of glass that is. And it probably has a little bit of curve to it, so you can't. You know, it's not obviously it's not. Oh no, no, glass. no! It's it's got yeah. a little curve. It's not going to be entirely fat, flat like the super van from the seventies. Yeah. Um, what but if you've ever driven one, you know how long the dash is. If anybody ever put threw a pair of sunglasses on the dash, you'd have to have an, an outstretched <laughs> coat hanger to get them back. <laughs> Well, the Vega actually hammered at ten thousand five hundred dollars, and uh, That's not bad. yeah, it's um, ones that are running are kind of rare to be honest. So, surviving examples are generally in good condition. Over the years, a lot of them have been replaced, uh, had you know all the systems and etc. inside of them redone. Cosworth models are collector items, and low mileage. Yeah, they models, are. They you can get up to excess of twenty thousand dollars for those. Uh, there's uh, according to the article. At the time of printing, there's a Vega on Bring a Trailer at this moment with 39 miles on the clock that is uh, getting close to $30,000, <laughs> which is, this is one of the reasons there's... why I'm like, if I don't jump at any vehicle that comes across on my little listings that's in my price range, I'm, I'm dead meat, man, because people are willing okay, to pay $30,000 well, for an all, effing Vega. First of all, there's an ass for every seat. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the ass that likes Vegas. Amen. Secondly, uh, there's a Vega running around town right now that has got it's been tubbed in the back, and the guy's running a really monstrous 383 small block in it, and it shakes the ground when he fires it up. That's and awesome. you want to know what I do with a Vega, especially the one that we're talking about here. I would that do if that. If you look at the <laughs> the color of the side, it's dust colored. It looks like putty. It's awful. So yeah. Uh, jack it up, tub it, go drag race. You know, okay, this Vega, since it's just a two-door, absolutely. Uh, there's not a piece of that interior that I would give a damn about. And that totally crappy motor, eh, nobody cares. But my brother had a uh, Vega station wagon, and it was that yes. kind of military green, little four-speed. And it's surprisingly, that little sewing engine could uh, make that little amount of metal zip along. And so he took a six inch foam pad, cut it to shape for the whole back. There was never more than two people in that thing, set it to the full length of it. And my mom had one of these just God awful old rugs that it had that kind of almost like yarn that's been kind of twisted and just rough as hell. It, it was awful to walk on. 
And he took that, threw it into the back, spread it out. That was his shagging wagon. I, I won't kid you. I would love to have one of those. I would love to park that <laughs> in the driveway just because of the memories. Because I, I, when I was a kid, he's six years older than I was. So he was 16. I'm 10. And he's bringing home pretty girls. And they uh-huh. seem to like riding with him in his car. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. I'll go you one for one on the Vega memories. The idea of tub it, stuff a big V8 in it and go race is not original. My cousin Jason had a Vega wagon. It was bright orange. Nice. It nice. had been caged, tubbed, <laughs> and had a built 383 stroker motor in it that probably put out around 500 whores. Oh, my God. Now, what what did he put underneath that? Surely he pulled that completely off the frame because, sweet Christ, I can't imagine there was enough metal in that frame I, to support the torque. I think he, well, it's that's that's the reason for the cage. Oh, is to I just stiffen the whole that was thing up. Roll it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> dual. Uh, it's dual purpose. double duty. Yeah. But this is what he drove to high school. <laughs> the only kid that scared the guidance counselor. <laughs> oh no, man! He he said that on Friday when all the you know all the gearhead kids parked in the back oh, of the parking lot. Yeah. And everybody's taking off Friday afternoon after school, ripping ass across the parking lot. He said he could pull the front wheels off the ground. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I saw him do it. I never got to drive that. I want to drive that car. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to find uh, all kinds of links and more to what we've been talking about on our blog at RoadMuscleRadio.com. Now, coming up in our second segment, Jeff Stunkard, magazine editor, book author, and snake handler (laughs) guy's got a hell of a resume (laughs) he's joining us next so stick around for more road muscle radio on the way back with road muscle radio you can find us on the web at roadmuscleradio.com on twitter at road muscle radio and on facebook and we're always on the lookout for good car stories great new stuff that makes your hot rod hotter and cool people that know cool stuff feel free to send us info on any of these to driver at roadmuscleradio.com and we'll check it out for possible future episodes joining us right now is jeff stunkard jeff's got over three decades in the magazine business as a publisher writer photographer and editor with literally hundreds of features that have been published in numerous automotive titles you're probably a little familiar with that brett uh jeff's (laughs) focus has been primarily on drag racing and muscle car history but he's also dabbled in publishing about lionel train layouts and neotropical rattlesnake taxonomy Stuckert has also been noted for his work in historic racing preservation and maintains a substantial library of original film and image media, which I need to ask you about. Both his own and other artists' uh, work. His privately published hardbound automotive photo collections regularly sell for 150 bucks and up and very short production units, usually under 200 copies, most under 10, so highly collectible. 
And in addition to photographic prints and digital media products, among his clients are various Detroit auto manufacturers, well-respected auction firms, museums, and aftermarket companies. And that's all I was willing to read from uh, your Amazon listing. So, because it goes on and on and on. Holy hell. Jeff, welcome to Road Muscle Radio. Hey, guys. What's up? I have been looking forward to this for so long because I bought your book, Hemi, A History of Chrysler's Iconic V8 and Competition. Some great pictures in it, and uh, it is neck deep uh, into info, things that I had no clue about for the uh, the growth of Hemi as a racing engine. And let's be honest, uh, taking it from racing and all that did was help sell it more and more in the vehicles that went out to street and also made streetcars into racing vehicles. Hallelujah. I hadn't really thought of a Hemi not being in competition but there was a time when they weren't. How did the engine find its way onto the drag strip and racetrack? Well, I think the easiest way to begin that part of the story is to look at Chrysler's engineering base. I mean, Chrysler as a corporation always had solid engineering. And what happened was at the beginning of World War II, they were given an assignment by the U.S. Army to build an efficient airplane motor. And what they did is tested multiple single-cylinder engine configurations to find out what was the optimum way to burn gasoline and what they came up with was a hemispherical design it was not the first ever motor with a hemispherical combustion chamber but it was the most effective one ever designed by creating a valve angle of 53 and a half degrees they were able to create a swirl effect as the gas came into the engine of course with jets arriving they never flew that particular motor in any kind of of of, uh military application, but as the post-war automotive boom started, Chrysler began looking at that as their first V8. So what they did is they adopted that technology to a passenger car engine. Because of the efficiencies, it immediately proved to be relatively uh, strong as a motor, and Chrysler immediately began to market that as a performance engine. At the time, you have to remember, horsepower was just beginning to grow in the American subculture the hot riding movement in, in Southern California, and so many people were buying new cars. It was very competitive to try to find a marketing niche. And so the Hemi began to become part of Chrysler's reality. But in 1955, when they did the C300, that was when Chrysler really created a performance mark for that Hemi motor. And that was only 331 cubic inches. Now, weren't DeSoto's using Hemis before that, though? They were, well, yes, DeSoto and Dodge and and Chrysler all had hemispherical engines of smaller displacements. What happened, though, is as as the small block Chevy arrived, you know, again, the horsepower deal was really growing in the Uh, mid-1950s. So what happened is Chrysler began growing the displacement on the engine up through 1958 when it finally hit a, a 392 cubic inch displacement. However, with the changes of the economy, especially going into the 1958 year when the economy began to slow down a little bit, the Hemi engine was discontinued in favor of a lesser expensive to produce wedge motor, but it, and so they just shelved that cylinder head for the time being. So didn't it uh, so the, wasn't part of the engineering issue also with it that those heads. And this is from reading your book because I don't know yeah. Jack, but I have learned so much. It was, it was like reading a Mopar Bible for me. And thus saith the engineer, thou shalt have um, 58 degree. Um, the heads had to be heavier. 
didn't they? They to, were to be able they to. They were substantially heavier, in fact. So there was a benefit to going to the wedge cylinder head design. The truth was, it was not that big of a difference in terms of raw horsepower at the RPM level. Those engines were changing. So for Chrysler, it was an economical move. Now the Hemi, as a as a legend motor, as a competition motor, had not yet occurred at that point. Yeah. However, during that ensuing four years between 59 and 63, the motor took over drag racing as a supercharged engine. I mean, lots of people moved toward that 392 engine to the point where a lot of 392 Imperials and Chryslers were sold and the bodies were scrapped out no matter how beautiful they were because somebody wanted that 392-inch motor to stick in a street rod, a drag car, a land speed car, whatever. God, that just kills me. So, Every t- I, when I read yeah. that in your book, I'm like, oh, God, I, I, Jesus wept. What the, what's going on with you? But uh, <laughs> there were the, the 426 seems to be kind of the, the, you know, the big boy, the big story. Uh, what, yeah. were, what were those iterations? What were those sizes that led up to the 426 being so, the monster? Again, I, I, I really think the bridge, when, when you look at the cars of the 50s, again, you just remember the only V8 Chrysler had to start out with was a Hemi. It went from the six-cylinder to the Hemi motor in the smaller displacements. The wedge motors came online as a less expensive possibility for Plymouth and for DeSoto and for Dodge in the later part of the 50s. And again, finally, with the 413, they decided to go ahead and, and drop the hemispherical configuration. What happened is when Lynn Townsend took over the presidency of the company, his kids basically said, hey, you know, we're up here on Woodward Avenue at night, and, and this, this Dodge Chrysler stuff is a joke. Nobody cares. So Townsend went back to Chrysler's engineering department and talked to Tom Hoover, and he said, look, we, we got to figure out a way to get our cars on the map in competition. Now, Hoover was a member of the Ram Chargers, which was kind of this group of of sort of radical engineers who were drag racing from an engineering standpoint. They invented the first tunnel ram. They invented all kinds of changes in a drag racing car from a scientific perspective. Nobody had looked at because they all loved the deductive reasoning of science. And that was what drove the Ram Chargers team. So when Townsend said to Mr. Hoover, hey, we got to go racing, Mr. Hoover knew immediately what they needed to try to do. And that was to adapt a new version of the Hemi cylinder head to what was by that point the 426 cubic inch max wedge block. Yeah. So the 426 had occurred in 63 when the international rules from AUKUS had moved to a seven liter rule. That's why everybody had 427 and 426 inch motors going into the 1963 season to meet that seven liter displacement limit. So what Mr. Hoover then had, because they wanted to run at Daytona in 64, he had basically 10, 10 months, 11 months to put together a competitive engine with an untried cylinder head and all kinds of challenges nobody had thought of because you have to remember as the displacement of the block increased, so did the weight of all the reciprocating assembly parts. So the piston was a monster compared to the older pistons. And one big problem they had was the cylinder walls were actually cracking simply from piston cam, the piston slamming as it it rotated through the assembly actually cracking the motor. They had to deal with all this. They had to deal with all this on a really quick uh, basis. And the truth was, if they had not figured it out in January, the Hemi would have disappeared after December, after the February Daytona 500. It wouldn't have finished. They, so, wouldn't, they would have never finished the event. Okay, so, so what that's was the- kind of the legend of where the 426 went into. And the reason it stayed at 426 
is that remained the competition limit throughout the 1960s okay. from AUKUS, which was the international governing body of motorsports. What was that magic bullet that uh, made them able to uh, maybe thicken the walls or at least make, make the uh, yeah. Pistons not beat hell out yeah. of everything? So, so what happened is they began seeing the failures because they were running 24-hour dyno testing in Highland Park. An engineer named Bill Wortman who had enough knowledge of metallurgy to see what was going on, actually went to the Indianapolis foundry and he worked a a 24 hour period to get a block casting that they knew should be able to hold together. But this was, I mean, they were playing beat the clock. This was in early February, 1964. The race was literally weeks away. And by the time those motors were seasoned and built at Chrysler, they actually sent teams out of Daytona beach by truck, they were afraid if they had a plane wreck with eight engines in it, they would end up losing all this technology they had just built. So they each oh team God. left the Daytona Speedway where they were already testing and qualifying, drove straight to Detroit with pickup trucks or whatever, threw two engines or an engine in the back, whatever they're allocated, back to Daytona for Sunday morning. It was, it was crazy. And it was amazing that the motor did as well as it did. We really ought to paint the picture here of some amazing uh, – individuals because yeah okay this thing is being driven it's being driven by the people who were working on it people who are designing it they're also racing these things and then that's on a weekend so they get out and they do this and then they drive back to work because monday's a work day bitch right and you gotta get up and make the bacon (laughs) so well here's the thing you know everybody thought the ram chargers were like oh they're the factory guys well they might have worked for the fact but the factory wasn't giving them any money the factory had guys they sponsored they had dick landier they had uh, Alex Strand, and they had people who were getting a paycheck. The Ram Chargers got a paycheck for working five days a week. <laughs> so to support the racing, they had to travel with the race car and win. You oh. didn't get money if you didn't win. Now, you could travel and get a booked-in deal, and you could test, but if you wanted a big pile of money, like let's say $1,500 and $1,963 or $64, which was real money, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you'd better have your A game in when you show up. And, of course yep. – the Ford guys and the independent GM guys love nothing more than to spank them. So there's all kinds of stories about different things they did to try to go faster. And the other teams did to go faster and who was cheating and who wasn't cheating. And, you know, so. define cheating. <laughs> all of this was going on with the Hemis. They've grown them. Uh, they've become very popular. Tell us about the arrival of the Dodge Charger Daytona in 1969 and how the 69 Torino Ford trying to kill these uh, Chrysler people forced Dodge to make it better. So what happened was in, Late 1968, Dodge released a special charger. This charger had a flush, a flush grill and a flush rear window. Now, the original styling in 68 had an inset grill and a flying buttress rear window. What the stylist didn't realize is that that inset grill worked as a giant air scoop, pushing air underneath the car to lift the front wheels, and the flying uh. buttress rear window caused air to go turbulently across the deck lid, lifting the rear wheels off the ground. So at 180 or plus miles an hour, you would find out pretty quick if you needed a set of the pens or not. (laughs) And this had to be the most terrifying thing they'd ever been in when you think about that car in traffic moving around. This was during the 68 season. In 69, they went to this flush grill, flush rear window design with the standard charger body and debuted at the 1969 Daytona 500. At the final lap, Leroy Yarborough slingshot around, charging Charlie Glotzbach. Yarborough in his swoopy Ford, 
and Glockspach in the Charger 500 and won. Oh. And Bob McCurry, the man in charge of Dodge, was not happy with losing after going to all this trouble. <laughs> I'll bet. So when no. he played college football, they called him Crusher, and he went into his aerostylist, and he said, boys, have you got anything else? And they pulled a couple of sketches. I well, been playing around with this technologically and it's got a pointy nose and it's got two rear pylon spoilers and yeah so mccurry looked at it and said damn that thing's ugly will it win and they said yeah he said okay go ahead do it as quick as you can (laughs) what happened was that in april of 1969 they knew AUKUS, which was the international motorsports sanctioning body was going to meet to try to put a bit of a a kibosh on all these factory specials. They wanted to up the production and change some things like that. When they met in late April, it went from being 500 units, which had been the number required for the Charger 500, for one unit for every two dealerships. Now, with 10,000 Ford dealers, that was the end of any more Ford Aero specials after the Torino, Talladega, and Cyclone Spoiler 2. And for Dodge, they had introduced the Charger Daytona as a new model on April 13th of 1969, two weeks before AUKUS met, and they were going to be able to just build 500, which they did by that September to be able to run them at the new track in Talladega that Bill France was building, and they won. We're talking with Jeff Stunkard, author of Hemi, A History of Chrysler's Iconic V8 and Competition. You can find it on Amazon where I bought it, along with Landy's Dodges, the Mighty Mopars of Dick Landy, uh, also, Chrysler's Motown Missile, Mopar's Secret Engineering Program at the Dawn of Pro Stock, which is the most recent book and uh, is just flat out easy to get. 1970 Plymouth Superbird Muscle Cars in Detail, number 11. You apparently kind of like Mopars, Jeff. What got you into Mopars so, so much? Well, when I was a kid, um, I really didn't have a huge interest in cars until I wrecked the family car and my dad <laughs> needed to buy me my own personal car. Well, he bought me a 68 Charger. And my oh, dad, he want you dead? Back in, yeah, yeah, he bought <laughs> me a 68 Charger. This was in 1978. It was 750 bucks, 318. Oh, and, uh, dude. yeah, and, and so I had this Charger. My dad had been a member of the National Hot Rod Association in the 1950s. He had kind of quit hot rodding when he had gone to college, but – he still had a little bit of that in his veins. So that was kind of how I got started as a car guy. Now, prior to that, I hadn't really thought much about it. But when I went to high school with this thing, all of a sudden, people were saying, man, wow, cool. And that was kind of what got me into being a car guy. I mean, to really see there was this culture associated with it. So fast forward a couple of years, I uh, got busted street racing in Philly, had a lot of fines to pay and everything else. And that's when I decided, you know, Maybe I could be a writer and a photographer because I really don't want to get in any more trouble this way. So, yeah, if I could blame it on journalism, then I I won't That's get a right. ticket, right, Ossifer? That's right. Well, I needed something to occupy my motorsports desire, and it was easier to just do that than to keep going the way I was going. So, just out of curiosity, what kind of vehicle was it that you killed? The family car. What kind was that? It was a Pontiac station wagon. One of a handful built with a 400 four barrel in it with fully option Grand Prix type station wagon. And yeah, my dad was not happy. He was yeah, he not was amused happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> so what he got you was a super long car with a 318. It didn't get you the biggest motor, but he gave the kid just enough to, you know, he got me a $750 car that happened to be a 68 charger in 1978. Oh, that's awesome. Yay, dad. Yeah. 
All right. Tell us about the magazines for which you're an editor or you used to be an editor, because you've got so much going on with writing. Yeah, actually, I kind of take it as a stamp of pride that I've worked for every major Mopar magazine out there, including both factory magazines, Forward and the Mopar magazine that comes out to the dealerships. But uh, I edited I edited uh, Mopar Muscle for about a year and a half in, in 2000. I edited Mopar Enthusiast from, nine, from 2009 to 2010 when that company pulled the plug on all their magazine titles. And then about two years ago, I took over as managing editor at Mopar Action Magazine, which remains the final magazine that's on the newsstands now with regular distribution. And all of this with a uh, college degree and a master's degree in, in writing and publication, right? Uh, I got a BS. <laughs> I got a BS in everything I do. I just got a BS. I got nothing else I can do but BS. And that's what I do. That's my graduate degree. You see, I went to the University of Life. I got a BS and BS. I've made great use of it over these years. And I, I think that uh, just as a side note, I love that part of this story because you've parlayed this into an entire career. And just doing one uh, stuff you love and figuring out, okay, what angle could I take on this stuff that I both love? And that might get me, you know, in trouble if I don't do something with it uh, and turned it into success. And these poor kids coming out nowadays with their, you know, $60,000 in uh, debt from the junior college and trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do with this degree in basket weaving. God bless you. You know, there well, are all I'll kinds of things you, that the, have the truth is, You know, I, I worked, I worked for ten years at Citibank when I was younger. I had a three day a week job, so I had four days off every week. I worked night shifts three days a week. I was recently married, and we didn't have much money, so I had to figure out a way to do drag racing without paying to get in. <laughs> and I had a great, I had a there great English. I'd been an English, a good English student when I was in high school. So I went to Englishtown Raceway Park in New Jersey, and I <laughs> asked the guy who was in charge of the newspaper, hey, you need another writer. And when he saw what I could write, he said, yeah. And that was kind of how that started. And then Mopar Muscle took me on about probably about 1993. I began writing for them pretty regularly, and then it just went from there. That's so, awesome. Um, you know, I, I, I did a little bit of college and dropped out as soon as I would picked the camera up again. I had been a photographer a little bit in high school with the – school camera but when i did it again in college i said you know what this is what i want to do yeah i really don't want to i don't want to go through a bunch of stuff to get a piece of paper saying after four years i'm smart i want to take whatever money i would spend on that and just use it in that time film i wasn't killing pixels we were killing frames it was more expensive (laughs) and i just spent that money on film shooting races shooting car features doing whatever i could to hone my craft as a photographer and you know, Chrysler's bought my stuff. I've had stuff that I've done for other big companies. And, um, you know, it's it's been a pretty amazing trip. So now I you, give God the credit for it because in the end, there's no way I could have set this stuff up on my own. A lot of it, it just, I, I was I was blessed to be in the right place at the right time or to meet the right person at the right time. And when I did that, the door opened up and I was able to go through it. So, you know, yeah. for anybody who's got their degree in basket weaving, Unless you want to do that, and that's great if you do, but yeah. follow your heart. You'll figure out what you want, and just remember, none of this comes easy. I did 10 years at Citibank and took a $1,000 a year cut in pay to become editor at Drag Review at the IHRA, and then when that job went away for two years, I've freelanced now for 25 years. Nice. So, <laughs> nice. 
Well, you know, when I got into radio, I had a career spanning about 35 years in it. And uh, the only reason I got into radio was because I was uh, waiting tables at a pizza hut. If it hadn't been for that, I didn't go to a radio station and apply. I waited on three people that were in radio and thought I was kind of funny. <laughs> right, like, right. Hey, looks aren't everything, buddy. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, no. yeah for radio. See? <laughs> see what I'm talking about? So you've had a, a couple of other interests here, and they were listed on your Amazon bio. What yeah. in the hell is Neotropical Rattlesnake Taxonomy? So when I was a little kid, I thought snakes were pretty cool, and I actually won a first place in the science fair at Purdue University for all in northeast, northwestern Indiana with a snake project I did. So it's always been a, a subject of interest for me. During one of my drag racing excursions, I met a guy in, in central Kentucky who has a huge venom lab. And he's of course got it's 2,000 plus venomous snakes. Yeah, it's king cobras and typhons and mambas and the whole nine yards. Only place where you so can I went to one of the reptile magazines, and, I, and this guy told me he's the only guy who had one of every subspecies of neotropical rattlesnake. I said, well, let's do a story. So <laughs> we boxed a bunch of snakes up, took them outside, found a couple of locations to set them up, and I shot – probably 13 or 14 different varieties of neotropical rattlesnakes and then wrote up this whole thing about, you know, venom secretions and taxonomy where their, their distribution is and things like that. It was fun. You know, it kind of scratched that particular itch for a while. I have no interest in owning a neotropical rattlesnake, but it sure is cool to see somebody else do it. Like I said, I don't need to do anything stupid. I want to get a picture of you doing something, something stupid. stupid. That is so wise. <laughs> Words of wisdom. Now, if you could own any car, what would it be and why? Well, I have to tell you, I've, I've really fallen in love with the late model stuff. And I, I like this, this brand new car. Chrysler just came out with this super stock Challenger, which is a red eye package. This thing will run 10 fives on the street tires it's sold on. Oh. It still gets great mileage. It has the same street and sports suspension as the normal red eye which is kind of a road race car but in track mode it'll run 10 fives at 130 miles an hour so if i could get anything right now i'd like to have one of those with a leather interior air conditioning and a full bose stereo system <laughs> <laughs> and enough room for groceries hallelujah <laughs> of course of course well brett you have the last question which is one of the big ones it's always my favorite question to ask any of our guests, and it usually is the one that gets you, gets us the best answer. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Okay, well, I, I can go through a pretty long list, but I can tell you the most terrifying thing that ever happened. I was in Denver, Colorado for a Mopar show, and a gentleman there had a kind of a rough 1969 six-pack Super B. Now, that's the 440 six-pack car. So we got up about 6 a.m., and he said, you want to drive this over to the – we're going to take it over to Red Rocks, shoot it at Red Rocks. That's cool. I cruise it over there. Mind if I get on a little bit? Womp. You know, I'm kind of getting on. You know, it's 70, 75 miles an hour. Now, you got to remember, this is a 69 Mopar that's not fully restored, so it's shaking and rattling. Sure. So we get up to Red Rocks. It's drizzling a little bit. I get this great set of photos. It made him look like a bootlegger sliding around corners. So I get my camera bag, and I stick it in the back seat. And he says, I'm going to show you how to drive this thing. And he oh, got in it. God. 90 miles an hour in Red Rocks, in the drizzle, 8 o'clock in, in the, the morning. Rain. There's a cliff on one side. Uh -huh. There's a mountain on the other side. 
and this guy is doing donuts in this thing through the tunnel at 80, sideways. And you know what? I realized I never, ever have to see how fast anyone's car ever is again. Because I couldn't take a picture. I was in with the guy doing stupid instead of being outside getting a picture of him doing stupid. Life lesson learned, if he says it's fast, just nod your head and say, okay. <laughs> well, you can find Jeff all over the interweb. Start at Amazon.com and search for G-E-O-F-F-S-T-U-N-K-A-R-D. Yeah, it's the fancy Jeff. Uh, or check out Mopar Ashen hey, Magazine. Wait a minute, pal. I cried the whole time my mother named me that. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, but you know there's no re on the end of it. So she kind of Oh, cheated. there is a re on the end of it. I just don't use it. It, I don't, I don't like a multi first name, Ed. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, I'm a Jeffrey. Your name I'm has Jeffrey fine Frick. Corinthian leather on it. <laughs> yes, that's right. Look for uh, uh, Jeff at Mopar Action Mag- Magazine. And, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us here on Road Muscle Radio. All right, guys. Great time. Thank you. Now, does that guy know his Mopar or what? Holy I'm cow. blown away. I thought I knew some of that history. <laughs> you know, as I've been getting through the book, and just the weeds, and I just feel like, oh God, I can't, I can't force enough into this into my head because one, it's my head, and then two, the the information is just cool, very cool. It's and- stuff like that that makes me want to own a Mopar. And the other thing was, his old man bought him a '68 Charger in '78. Dukes of Hazard came out in '79, didn't it? <laughs> I know it. You know, I had a friend in high school who uh, totaled his, he had a 66 Mustang. It was a three-speed six-banger, right? Uh, yeah. And rolled it uh, because he drove like an idiot. And then his parents, you know, because he needed a, a car for high school, you know, on various sports teams, yada, yada. So they got him a 68 Mustang with a 351. And all I ever thought was, how badly did they want to be empty nesters? That's why I asked Jeff what I asked. Did, it, yeah. did your dad want you dead? Uh, what, a, what a cool car. Thank you, by the way, for sharing your time with us as we yak about grease, gears, and cool car stuff. We love going on a ride, and it's fun to have cool people to talk to and cool people to listen just like you. Be sure to visit us on Facebook at Road Muscle Radio at RoadMuscleRadio.com and on Twitter. I'm Catfish Groves. And I am Brad Hatfield. And we'll catch you down the road on Road Muscle Radio. Mm-hmm.